You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's uh, edition of the Drive Time Show here live on uh, The Voice of Islam. You're here live myself uh, in our South London studios, uh, myself being Talib Man. So it's been a long time in the chair, about two months I've been away. So... Uh, Bear with me, listeners. Uh, it's it's rather cold there. I've been in sunnier climes in Hong Kong, where the current temperature is around about 15 degrees. So uh, a good, well, actually, it's a warmer 15 than the 8 degrees that we have here. So the voice is sounding a bit hoarse. Uh, it's a week coming back. And, um, yeah, it's it's good to be back, though, uh, looking at the surroundings, uh, being welcomed by our new tech as well. And uh, we've been given uh, a lot of uh, blessings, as, as, as is always the case uh, when you listen to the Voice of Islam. So today, what's happening today? Well, we've got uh, our usual two topics or you know, uh, you know, to occupy our two hours here. In the first hour, we'll be looking at something very, very topical. Uh, it's happening currently, and I believe we'll be concluding tomorrow, and that is COP28. And uh, we'll be looking at, uh, you know, we'll be looking uh, into the heart of COP28, uh, unity and action. And you know, with that, I mean, we you know face unprecedented environmental challenges uh, in the world today, and um, we'll try and unravel the pivotal decisions and agreements emerging from uh, COP28, if there is an accord as such, uh, exploring how uh, nations, communities, and individuals can actually unite uh, to address the urgent climate crisis that we all face. Um, these may range from sustainable energy solutions to climate resilience strategies, navigating the diverse avenues where unity can pave the way for a more effective action, uh, exploring the power of collaborative efforts and the positive impact achievable when the international community stands together. So um, that's going to be in our first hour. Uh, when we look at what's happening at COP28, and it's, it's, it's very topical currently because obviously we've had uh, the chair uh, of or the presidency this year is at uh, the U- United Arab Emirates, and there's already been some uh, discussion as to uh, regarding um, the terminology of uh, fossil fuels. You know, when will they actually be... Um, phased out and I think that is one of the biggest stumbling points but uh, we've got a couple of guests later on in the show uh, to talk more regarding this and in the second hour we'll be exploring astronomy and as we look uh, you know as the kind of like the skies I'm looking outside the window and I can't really see the the stars because it's a bit gloomy outside a bit cloudy but I'm sure uh, like myself, you know, you've looked at the stars, you've looked up into the skies and into the heavens, and um, you know, being Muslims, uh, it's part of our our, our tradition. Our, actually, not tradition, part of our five daily prayers when we uh, uh, when we recite Surah Fatiha, that uh, it gives us an inkling that you know there's something more out there. Uh, because uh, he is Lord of all the worlds. So all those stars up there, 
Uh, we'll be delving into uh, that subject uh, in a little bit more detail. And actually, we have the honour of welcoming uh, Rachel Perkins, who works at the Planetarium, and she's a spokesperson there. And uh, she'll be coming into the studio uh, in the second hour, uh, joining myself and uh, speaking about uh, what astronomy is about, uh, how it has been or how the uh, way has been paved by previous Muslim scholars uh, in astronomy. And uh, actually, what we can, you know, what we can see at uh, the London Planetarium currently in the immersive experiences. But uh, we're just going to go straight into our first topic of the day, which is uh, COP twenty eight. Um, as I had already said, you know, we've got the uh, the climate change or climate accords, which have been discussed in uh, currently in the UAE. United Arab Emirates and the theme for uh, this particular session COP28 is unity and action and yeah as as the name would suggest you know we really need to to get a get a move on and actually have some accord uh, regarding this uh, COP28 is the 28th conference of the parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Uh, and, and once again, it's pivotal, um, or it is a pivotal international gathering with significant implications for addressing the global clim- uh, climate crisis. And, um, you know, it started on the 30th, or, or it was convened on the uh, 30th of November and is due to finish tomorrow on the 12th. Now, this conference is a critical juncture or uh, or is, sorry, a critical juncture for the world to assess and advance climate action collectively. Now, in the Holy Quran, uh, in chapter 51, verse 57, it says, One of the favours Allah the Almighty has given us is life. If we look at where we live, the earth, any closer to the core of the earth, life would not exist. And at any distance out of the ozone layer, life does not exist. The same with the position of the earth from the sun. If any closer or further, life wouldn't exist. And as our main purpose of existence is to worship Allah, and I have not created the jinn and the men, but they worship me. So during this, uh, you know, when, when we... we or the the theme of COP uh, twenty eight is international collaboration. So unity actually in diversity. Uh, Dr. Sultan Ahmed uh, Al Jaba, who is the uh, president designate, uh, the UAE special envoy for climate change and minister of uh, industry and advanced technology, emphasised that inclusion is a crucial cornerstone of the COP twenty eight presidency, uh, saying that. The COP28 plan of action is centred on four key pillars. Uh, Number one being the fast-tracking the energy transition, fixing climate finance, focusing on people, lives and livelihoods, and underpinning everything with full inclusivity. The COP28 presidency believes inclusivity is a critical enabler to achieving transformative uh, progress across the climate agenda. Um, and only by uh, raising 
uh, above our, or sorry, I should say rising above our differences and working together, we can raise our shared ambition and deliver progress to keep one and a half degrees Celsius within reach. Now, I'm actually joined by my first guest of the day, uh, Martin Simonel. Now, Martin is a Senior Programme Communications Manager at Cool Earth. Martin's interests span from the rainforest, climate justice, the diversity and complexity of human cultures, indigenous rights and current affairs. Assalamu Peace and blessings be upon you, Martin. Thank you for joining uh, myself on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Hello and good afternoon. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. And yourself, Martin? Very well. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we're talking, I mean, and we've seen the news that's uh, surrounded COP28 and, uh, you know, on the penultimate day, I believe, of COP28. Um, do you, just just quickly, do you think there is going to be a consensus? Yes, I think, as you say, I mean, the last few hours have been quite heated, mm-hmm. uh, I'd say, uh, particularly on the terminology around uh, phasing out fossil fuels. Yeah, it is this phasing out fossil fuels, isn't it? There is a bit of a, a reticence to, to actually include that. Precisely, yes. Um, the current text isn't looking very positive uh, regarding this. So, and I think whatever the, the final text is will probably decide the outcome of this COP, whether it's, you know, an, another disappointment like many other COPs before, mm-hmm. or, you know, a, um, a move forward towards... Um, action which is obviously lacking at this stage Mm, yeah because it seems to me uh and i suppose a lot of observers of these uh these talks is that you know you seem to uh, or you know these uh, you know these big players these stakeholders they're there but is it really you know you know our, our actions um you know, whatever they've they've debated and whatever plans they have out there, uh, and you know these cries for unity in diversity, um, is it just rhetoric then? I, I mean, I want to be optimistic and mm-hmm. say no. We have to, I suppose. Action. Really, we have to be exactly. Now, where I work at Cool Earth, um, we support indigenous peoples and local communities that live in the rainforest. So. Mm-hmm. You know, the rainforest is, is this great carbon sink, but also the source of livelihood for about 1.2 billion people around the world. And it's those voices, really, that, that we care about at mm-hmm. Cool Earth. And those voices are represented at COP. So you'll have a lot of Indigenous people representative um, in, at the event trying to, to convey their views, share their experiences at the front line of, at the, front line of the crisis. And you'd expect them to influence whatever is going to be put in the text and influence decision makers. Mm-hmm. Now, it's hard to tell if they have that power and that influence. Um, we're supporting them. when We don't have a physical presence, but we work with a um, women-led indigenous organization that's currently at COP. Um, and what they told us at the beginning was like, it's all in English. Uh, and we don't speak English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so what we've done with them was help them with, with translation. So it doesn't sound like a, 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 um, a great climate action, but actually sharing those voices, amplifying those voices, is actually critical in the fight against climate change because they bear the brunt of the mm-hmm. climate crisis, and they absolutely know what to do in the face of this quite aggressive crisis. Now, you'd hope that these can influence whatever decisions are being made 
in these final hours. Mm. I mean, when when you say that, obviously there's the syntax, right? And a lot is uh, lost in translation. I mean, what the, are the because you're, you're talking about the rainforest? I mean, I, you've, you've actually answered my first question. So, I mean, you know, your work emphasizes the social and cultural diversity in rainforests. I mean, how does uh, Cool Earth ensure that those indigenous communities and local people's voices are heard? Uh, uh, and actively incorporated into climate action initiatives. You know, just moving on from what you've just said. I mean, it's 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 you know not just about translation, correct? Precisely. I mean, it's not just about translation. I think at this event, it was about translation for us. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think it's important to note that stewarding ecosystems such as the rainforest is not a new thing for Indigenous peoples and local communities. And that's the first, and they've done it for centuries, if not. Uh, thousands of years um so they know exactly how to to fight a threat to their rainforest now what we also do is we've had the privilege of working with indigenous peoples and local communities for over 15 years now in the amazon the congo basin and in the new guinea rainforest and ever since our, our first partnership with such communities we've delivered um cash mm-hmm. now which, you know, at our level, which is a sort of small to medium-sized charity, is very important. But, you know, that, that rationale that we have could also be implemented in spheres as high as, as COPs. Um, and actually, the, in, in the last 10 days, we've dispersed the first uh, basic income payment for Indigenous peoples and local communities in the rainforest. So in the, in the world of rainforest conservation or climate change, this has never been done, done before. And that basic income payment allows individuals that have rights over the rainforest to, ad- to, to, to direct them, it allows them to address them, their basic needs. Basically. Mm-hmm. Um, there are millions of people that live in the rainforest and each and every one of them have um, different aspirations, different challenges, different needs, different um opportunities mm-hmm. uh, and it's very rare that you are able to kind of impact a whole political community let's say so that's that's the backbone of, of call us call us work with indigenous peoples in the rainforest mm-hmm. so when you say um because you said that you know that the the indigenous people the, those that are really at the sharp end of the stick, aren't they, right? Uh, they're seeing, say, for instance, rainforest de- deforestation um, firsthand. And you, know, you said you know, they know how to fight it. I mean, how do they actually fight that then, Martin? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't believe that, you know, literally with, you know, weapons do they fight it, but how, how do, I mean, maybe they do. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes please, we get to that us. point. <laughs> yeah, sometimes yeah. we get to that very rare, no. Um, well, the, the, the thing is that, you know, their livelihoods depend on the rainforest. Mm-hmm. So over thousands of years, their modes of production, their relationship to the land and resources that they have rights on has, has evolved with it. You know, I mean, it's not the first time that, that a threat, that they're faced with a, an existential threat mm-hmm. like the climate crisis. You know, I mean, in South America, ever since colonization, um, they've had threats come into their land and to their rights as human beings. So at this stage, because the climate crisis is so intense and keeps evolving and and the effect or the impact of the climate crisis has 
an effect on on everything their food systems uh their rights as human beings they're often displaced and uh, therefore not able to to steward the land but essentially what they need is is more resources mm-hmm. uh more more financial resources mm-hmm. i mean there was a quite an alarming report that came out a couple of years ago saying that indigenous peoples and local communities receive less than one percent of climate funding when it comes to um supporting their their well-being and their rights um so so i mean the, the critical step at this stage is more resources more funding being delivered to them unconditionally with great flexibility uh and then amplifying their voice so so when i say amplifying their voice it's not about us as organizations like cool earth leading the fight it's being in a supporting role and and helping them get to where they need to be to be able to influence these big events like cops where decisions are being made on climate obviously on nature protection but also on the livelihoods of billions of people around the world Hmm. i mean uh when you talk about funding so you know you're a charity uh organization uh, in terms of you know the uk's contribution uh towards this funding for climate change or uh protecting the climate let's say right and as part of its work uh, on forests and leadership partnerships the government's announced a 90 million pounds for conservation in the congo basin and 65 million in the funding of nature people and climate investment fund mm-hmm. i mean you know where do these funds i mean that's that's yeah, a considerable amount, right? Ninety million for conservation in the Congo Basin, and another sixty-five million. So that's one hundred and fifty-five million in total. Um, you know, where, where, how does this funding actually reach those people? And you know, is it is it actually do do those people at the short end of the stick or the sharp end of the stick uh, get that funding, or is it lost uh, in that you know in that chain? Yes, I mean, and I suppose that's that's a good start. You know, 165 million. Um, I'd say it's still very insignificant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just the uh, <laughs> comparison. There was another report that came out where, you know, public. I mean, 1.7 trillion US dollars of public money wow. is invested or to, to subsidise the fossil fuel industry. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the 195, I think um, million that the UK might be giving to a, a rainforest fund. That's still very insignificant. Yeah, it's literally a drop then, in the ocean, isn't it? it exactly. And now the, the second part that you bring up, which is which is very true, it's in the operate operationalization of of that of that fund. Mm-hmm. Does the money reach people yeah. on the ground? Not often, uh, as I said. You know, one percent of, of climate finance trickles down um, to indigenous peoples, and when it does trickle down, you can probably expect that they're being told what to do with that money as well, mm-hmm. <laughs> not necessarily addressing their immediate needs. Um, so so how do you change that? At a global level, I understand that's very difficult. At our level, which is global, but at, at a small scale, um, we've, we're committed to making these, these cash payments totally unconditional, where it is not our decision as an organization to say where that money should be invested um, and that it's, yeah, almost universal, at least within that political community, that people have a say um, about that funding. 
Mm-hmm. They must be in control. It's about their autonomy. It's about their self-determination. They mm-hmm. only can determine the future of their rainforest land. Mm. You know, I mean, it's it's you're you're basically ham you know hamstringing people if you like say look look here's here's a, a load of dosh here's a, a sizable amount of money but and there's a caveat you can only use it on X Y Z uh, and I think um, you know you 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 guys here at Cool Earth have got a, a you know a more let's say more realistic approach in the sense that look you know you have that autonomy. Uh, as an indigenous people to 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 use the money uh whichever way shape or form you deem fit now i mean yeah having worked closely uh with small producer associations uh in uh, these areas uh and you know grassroots environmental charities what are the lessons that can be drawn from these engagements uh to actually you know building unity and um, fostering that collective action, um, you know, on a larger scale, so you know that we can see that maybe you know these grander uh, organ or these grander uh, stages like COP twenty eight can le- actually learn from them. Yes, I mean rainforest communities have have a long history of collective action. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've spoken about this, you know, it's. it's a hundred years of collective action to face whatever threat that's coming at them. Um, and as I said, you know, our role is more to support than lead. Mm-hmm. So when we get to a big event like COP, I, I suppose, you know, being able to to listen or to learn from these societies who are, you know, very integrated to, let's call it more mainstream, mainstream society. You know, they speak our lang- language mm-hmm. where we probably we probably don't speak their language and I think we need to, <laughs> to, to, to make more efforts to try and understand um, where they're coming from, what they're facing. There are two sort of types of voices that we're really interested in at Call Earth. There's the language of science, you mm-hmm. know, the one saying, okay, well, we need to, to, to keep fossil fuels in the ground. And there's obviously the voices of indigenous peoples, which come with, yes, thousands of years of, of knowledge, you know, of how to to work with an ecosystem, how to to which which are very dynamic ecosystems. You know, mm-hmm. they're not pristine rainforests where nothing moves. You know, it's, it's a very intricate web of life, and these people have have really managed to to, to well to, to to live in that environment mm-hmm. basically. Uh, so I think at this stage, when it comes to COP, it's about really listening to those voices and, and making sure they're in the right place. Mm-hmm. They are. I mean, decision makers as well. I mean, what's what's quite striking is a lot of the decision makers don't come from affected areas mm. of of climate change. You know, so it's very difficult for them <laughs> to make a decision on something they've not lived. You know, it's at the end of the day, it's all about lived experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, for sure. And, I mean, if and you haven't experienced, that. you know, um, flooding, you haven't experienced uh, periods of uh, famine, you know, because of you know drought then you really can't make a decision regarding those in terms of what your individual nation's uh, climate policy is, really, to tell you the truth. Um, I mean, you could you could presume, but you need to have that, I suppose, that interaction of those, uh, those people most affected, actually, by climate change. That's correct, you know, and that's why climate justice 
has has entered the kind of the the, the climate dictionary in a way in the last <laughs> year. It's almost like a new version of the Oxford Concise Dictionary now that we have these <laughs> climate terminologies, but climate justice, it, okay? Exactly. So, but the climate justice, and it makes a lot of sense because obviously the climate crisis is an environment environmental disaster in the making, but mm-hmm. it's as much a crisis. I mean, a human rights crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are being affected day in, day out. Uh, it's going to become more intense if we don't take action now. Um, and those people that can really tell you the story of how how aggressive those threats are are the people at the front line, whether they live in the rainforest, whether they're small island nations whose islands are about to be destroyed by rising sea levels. Mm-hmm. You know, you name them. There are billions of people out there that suffer the consequences of climate change. Yet they're not at the negotiating table when it comes to making crucial decisions about what's to come. Hmm. So, you know, as my final question regarding uh, climate justice, yeah, uh, and, um, you know, those uh, indigenous people's rights, I mean, how can COP28 address these issues, you know, effectively? Um, And thus... I suppose, ensuring that climate actions respect the rights and uh, knowledge of these indigenous communities, um, whilst you know, you know, having to promote uh, you know a sustainable future. Yes. Well, I mean that's not the. I mean, it is, it is the sixty. Uh, well, <laughs> what was the figure that you quoted? Yeah, the one point whatever trillion dollar question, really. Well, exactly. I mean, there's, there's a lot of that. Um, no, I mean, the thing is, how do you, how do you solve it? I mean, I, you know, personally would, would I, I'm trying to imagine a COP presidency leadership that's actually led by an indigenous nation or mm-hmm. an indigenous group. That's something that's never been done, you know. I mean, it's um, a bit, you know, jokes aside, it's a bit of a misnomer having COP28 and the presidency at... Uh, resident at the uh, United Arab Emirates, right? The the, the the basis of, you know, OPEC, really, mm. uh, next door. And it just seems, I mean, I'm not, you know, casting any aspersions as to where uh, and how that presidency got about. But already, I think uh, we heard rumours that, uh, you know, the, 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 the actual um, delegates there had been approached regarding fossil fuels and you know i think they called it in quote unquote side side negotiations mm-hmm. uh, and using you know the, the so so it's 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 a bit like you know not opposites attracting but really you're there to actually speak about how we're going to save the world right and look yeah. towards you know uh, actions which will limit our impact on the climate but then, on the other hand, hey ho, we're still making deals about fossil fuels. No, you're right. I mean, this COP was you know, riddled with scandals from the beginning. Mm. Um, and, and I mean, do you think, do you think, Martin, that that actually, um, you know, has a, the the veracity, right, of any decisions that or any uh, statements and. Uh, you know anything that actually comes out of this COP twenty eight conference? Uh, you know, can people really take it? You know, seriously in that sense. You'd hope. I mean, you're right. You know, the the number of fossil fuel lobbyists at this COP 
was record breaking. You know, I think it's seven times more than indigenous representatives. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you're fighting a, re- a losing battle there. However, what I'd like possibly to, to conclude with is the last question is to say, obviously, these cops happen for two weeks of the year every year. But climate organizations, there are plenty around the world, there's plenty of indigenous people around the world as well, and local communities and other you know, stakeholders that find the climate crisis on a daily basis. It doesn't just stop for these two weeks of the year. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand that these events make huge, uh, well, in theory, there to make huge decisions on how we tackle the climate crisis. So there's plenty of action happening, even when COP's not around. Um, now, again, you know, if we did manage to amplify the voices of those most affected by the, the, the climate crisis, and that they were put in decision-making power, uh, decision-making positions at such events, I think that would make that would put a lot of the rest of the world in quite uncomfortable position, and that's when action begins to build. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we got we got plenty of, of stories around those. You know, but what it feels like to live in the rainforest, or what it feels like to be confronted with the climate crisis on our, on our website. Uh, and I guess for a lot of the listeners, or your listeners, that are new to this or interested, um, we're also a third of the way through a match funding campaign where we talk about all of these things, and that's mm-hmm. the kind of new basic income pilot. So, you know, because it, it is. I mean, for us to understand, I mean, I'm, I'm sat in a in a studio here, you know, yeah. a load of load of kind of like you know electronics around me, and the, you know the world that you're talking about is so far removed. Uh, and it's for us to, in in these industrialized nations to actually have an understanding at the biodiversity uh, and and you know the wonderful kind of environment that that is in these mm. rainforests uh, and and that you know by our actions here um, you know we're we're stripping away uh, those opportunities for those pe- uh, indigenous peoples. That's correct, you know. Maybe one day it won't be me talking to you and possibly someone who's, who lives in the rainforest. He will be you know, far better at explaining what the reality is, what the challenges are, how you know, every day works. And every day is very different in the rainforest you know, and, and the threats continue to, to grow. Um, but I think eventually that's what we need to aim at, you know, putting these people in positions of, of, of more power, you mm-hmm. know. Really understanding what their struggles are like, and that that is the same for you know all the communities that are affected by by um, by climate change. And there was a, a quite a devastating quote from the representatives of the Marshall Islands the COP earlier today, saying that in the current text, if they were to sign it, they'd be signing their death warrant, mm. which is which is a devastating thing to hear. And in a way, cops are. Uh, the, the, the positive thing about COP is that people that are affected by the climate crisis can look polluters in the eye because the polluters are there as well. The same event mm-hmm. can sit across each other and say, this is what's happening to our livelihoods. Now, you did hope that those polluters also sat at the table. Have a conscience. <laughs> I suppose, <laughs> exactly. really. Have exactly. a conscience. Well, Martin, it's been a pleasure speaking to you uh, this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Drive Time Show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have, Have a good day. Bye bye. 
or tweet us uh, at Voice of Islam UK if you have something to say regarding climate change uh, and yeah, how it's affecting you yourself. And do you think actually that uh, if you as an individual stood up, would it actually instigate a change? So just, yeah, if you want to join in the conversation, uh, please do call me on 0208-687-7878. Now, one of the aims of... COP28, as uh, recited or as as stated by uh, the president, was a global challenge, a shared responsibility. Now, climate change is a complex global challenge uh, that transcends borders. Uh, unity amongst nations is essential because the actual impact of climate change uh, is felt universally, uh, requiring a collective res- uh, response recognizing that all nations share a joint responsibility to address the crisis is crucial to fostering that collaboration and as martin was saying that uh, you actually one of the benefits of cop28 is that you know these nations who are directly affected uh, nations and countries who are directly affected by climate change uh, get to uh, look at you know those countries who are uh, the main offenders and say, you know, and just not accuse them, but say, look, you know what, because of your uh, actions or inactions on, say, for instance, limiting fossil fuel or eradicating fossil fuel and moving to more sustainable energy sources, then um, this is what's happening to us, really, in our environment. Now, another thing that uh, Martin uh basically intimated to, was the interconnectedness of climate impacts, uh, the effects of climate change, such as extreme weather events. Um, Extreme weather events, rising sea levels and ecosystem disruptions are interconnected. Unity becomes imperative, as no single nation can address these impacts uh, in isolation. Cooperation... Cooperation... Uh, ensures a more comprehensive and practical approach to mitigating uh, and adapting to diverse challenges posed by climate change. So, you know, all these all these issues that are arising from COP22, just point the figure, or sorry, I should say, point the finger uh, to uh, a more unified yeah, more unified approach. Uh, and finally, shared resources and solutions. Now, Unity facilitates sharing resources, knowledge, technical innovations, collaborative efforts, enable nations to pool expertise and develop sustainable solutions collectively. Um, and, you know, really we're talking about uh, those countries and nations who are at the sharp end of the wedge, those vulnerable nations and environmental justice. Now, unity is particularly crucial for uh, addressing the concerns of vulnerable nations and marginalized communities like those of the rainforest uh, who are disproportionately affected by climate change. The principle of environmental justice uh, or climate justice, uh, we should say, underscores the importance of those collective actions and uh, uh, to ensure that the burdens and benefits of climate initiatives are distributed equitably uh, amongst nations, fostering a sense of global solidarity. So, you know, these, these, these are uh, 
some of those, I suppose, those aims and objectives that COP twenty two. Uh, and the presidency wanted to, to uh, wanted uh, this particular round of talks to be uh, targeting. Now, in terms of Islam, you know the aim of every Muslim should be in accordance with the injunction of the Holy Quran. You know, help one another in righteous and piety. Now, Islam is uh, in itself a universal religion revealed by God. For the guidance of all mankind, and is above any personal bias, uh, tribal prejudice, and ignorant uh, sectarianism, it teaches that all human beings are equal, and nobody is superior to uh, one to one another due to origin, color, genealogy, or race. The only difference in the sight of God between individuals is their degree of righteousness, their taqwa. As God says in the Holy Quran, verily. The most honourable person amongst you, in the sight of God, is He who is the most righteous among you. Uh, this is uh, from verse forty-nine. Uh, yes, chapter forty-nine, I should say, verse fourteen. And if you reflect on that uh, that verse, if we extrapolate that to being nations, and in terms of this. Uh, conversation we're having today regarding climate change then you know we are an internet you know although you know we're a vast community globally but we are interconnected and whatever we do here does affect other people uh, in other parts of the world but to talk more regarding climate change and cop 28 i'm joined by my next guest of the day uh, uh, Hisham Farag. Now, Hisham is a, a professor of finance and director of research at Birmingham Business School uh, in the University of Birmingham. He's also the founding director of the Sustainable Financial Innovation Research Centre. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Hisham. Thank you for joining me on the Drive Time Show. Alaikum assalam. Thank you very much for having me. So, um, you know, we're just really on the penultimate day of uh, this round of talks at COP28. Now, as a COP28 expert on finance-related topics, can you elaborate for myself uh, and our listeners out there the role of sustainable finance in achieving these goals that COP28 have and how financial innovations can support the transition to a low-carbon economy? Okay, so that that's a great question. So l- let me try to simplify to uh, uh, your listeners. So yeah. first of all, I think we we may all agree about the importance of climate change, which is now we can see episodes of extreme weather conditions happening everywhere, and it is really important to address that. We start to hear about climate migration. So we never heard that before. And you might be amazed to know that uh, the expectations is around 100 million people will be displaced worldwide, but mainly from developing countries. And those developing countries and, and mainly small economies, they will be hit the hardest. And they have actually nothing to do with the uh, uh, probably the carbon emission and the, uh, uh, the, the, the causes of of climate change. Mm-hmm. So that's why it is important to have uh, uh, some capital or 
we call it uh, uh, sustainable finance or mm-hmm. climate finance in order to address those challenges. Okay. So w- what is the role of uh, 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 sustainable finance? Of course, we are all aware that there is a funding gap. There was a pledge by uh, uh, big economies, developed countries in 2009 in Copenhagen to mobilize around $100 billion to developing countries. Mm-hmm. But this has not been met. What is happening at the moment in COP28, just in the first four days, this is really uh, unprecedented. So $57 billion have been mobilized, mm-hmm. uh, raised by businesses, by investors, and by governments in order to support climate change, mm-hmm. climate finance, and three main categories that we will need massive help and urgent help, which is called adaptation initiatives, mitigation initiatives, and also loss and damage. Mm-hmm. I mean, loss and damage, pretty you know understood, right? Because you know, you know what happens after floods, what happens after droughts, right? Yeah. But what are the first two then? If you could just okay. uh, elaborate. Okay, that, that that that's good. So so we always say so we have to differentiate between mitigation and adaptation finance. And in simple words, what does it mean? Adaptation involves measures and strategies to help countries cope with the impact of climate change, such as what? Uh, rising sea levels, mm-hmm. extreme weather events, loss of biodiversity, and change in agriculture patterns. So this needs massive investments to be mobilized, and private finance will not be able to do that mm-hmm. because the risk-return profile is not clear. So it's yeah, the I money mean, why would you invest come... something like that? Yeah, exactly. you know, it's, it's very exactly. hard. Right, because you can't see where the return is going to come. Exactly. It's very uncertain uh, yield in the future. So private sector will be reluctant to invest in adaptation projects. While mitigation is focusing on something probably everybody may observe around us, how to reduce greenhouse gases, mm-hmm. how to reduce carbon emission, and the severity of climate change, such as, for instance, uh, uh, investment in reno- renewable energy, uh, energy efficiency, electric uh, vehicles, uh, sustainable agriculture, those initiatives or projects could be more appealing to public and private finance because there is a risk-return profile and mm-hmm. the level of uncertainty is not that high as adaptation. Mm-hmm. I mean, as with this uh, round of talks at COP28, there's this idea of uh, the global stock take. Um, and you know, it's a prominent feature of this particular round of talks. I mean, how do you see this mechanism enhancing the actual accountability uh, or the financial ac- accountability, I should say, uh, in climate action? I mean, what role can the financial sector, whether it be private or public, play in supporting uh, the objectives of this global stock take? Okay, so this is another great question, and again for uh, your listeners, so mm-hmm. probably we would like to elaborate what is the global stock take. Yeah, yeah. So in, in this, this is something essential uh, or essential component of Paris Agreement or Paris Accord, which was uh, held in Paris in 2015. 2015, yeah. So, yeah, so this was designed to assess the collective progress of countries in tackling climate change. So, it, so the, the, what is the goal? The goal of this is to evaluate 
the mm-hmm. implementation of the agreement and what efforts made by several countries to limit the global warming to below uh, two uh, degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. So, and what was agreed in Paris that this exercise should be conducted every five years. Mm-hmm. So it's a milestone now. So this is the first time for this exercise, which is called global stock take, mm-hmm. to be conducted in COP28. Right, so it's okay. really important to, to double check what are the so, efforts sorry, by Hisham, all countries. Is it, is it three years late then? So, uh, yeah, because the agreement on uh, of uh, of Paris uh, was came into force in 2016, November 2016. And of course, as you know, there was massive disruption during mm-hmm. COVID and so on. So this was the first exercise right, okay. to happen, this global stock take. Mm-hmm. So it, everybody is, is looking at uh, COP28 outcome, and we would like to know what is the global collective effort to reducing carbon emission and how we achieve the uh, the uh, or deliver on the outcome of Paris Accord. Mm. So in that case, financial sector play key role in mm. supporting the objective of the global stock take. For instance, reporting disclosure. We will need to know with concrete evidence from every country what is the evidence now for carbon emission and so on. Mm, I suppose it's it's like anything. If you if we, it's, it's just that the I I suppose myself and a lot of our listeners out there find it very hard to to see something tangible, right, with climate change, uh, unless you know you're on uh, as uh, with my previous guest Martin was like saying because he deals with the indigenous people, whether it be in the Congo Basin or rainforests in Brazil. They're at the sharp end of the stick, so they see it, you know, on a day-to-day basis. But us in the more kind of Western hemisphere or the more industrialized nations, we don't see it maybe kind of like, oh, increased flooding, uh, but we don't see it in in a sense of uh, these um, dramatic weather conditions, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's very hard for, I suppose, us to conceptualize this, this stock take, you know how have we? You know how have we, uh, or how have nations actually um, done against their objectives from the 2015 accord? Yeah. So I think that it's effort in order for every country to report on the on the progress mm-hmm. of the of their uh, collective effort to reduce carbon emission, what they have done in terms of mitigation and adaptation. And again, we have to I'm just I agree with you. We're here in the Western world. Probably we are not uh, probably understanding what's happening in developing countries and small economies, and they are hit the hardest. So some of those countries, I'll give you just example of the outcome of the, of the research. Mm-hmm. If the sea level rise, for instance, by 180 centimeters, Right. I'm not talking now about uh, developing countries. I'm talking about Florida mm-hmm. in the United States. If sea level rise by 180 centimeters, mm-hmm. around 2 million houses will be exposed to flooding risk. Wow. So, 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 th- so the, the, the impact of climate change, when we say impose existential threat, we are not exaggerating mm-hmm. because there are some small islands will disappear from the map of the world. Mm-hmm. So we need to take action from now. Mm, I think uh, our previous guest Martin was like saying that uh, during uh, 
uh, the, these round of talks at COP28, the Marshall Islands said, you know, you're asking us to sign our own death warrant. Yeah, so... So, so this is the I, case. Yeah, I think we, we will need to take action. And action will come by <clears throat> simple concept. We, we I call it climate justice. Mm. So actually, it's really important. Yeah, so moving on to that, right? So, yeah, you are a founding director of SFIC. Uh, I mean, can you share some insights into uh, the research and innovations uh, in sustainable finance that could have, you know, a, a huge, huge impact on climate action? And, uh, you know, how might these findings actually, you know, inform those discussions at COP28? Okay, <clears throat> so excuse me. So l- let me share with you a uh, few uh, results of the uh, research on climate finance or climate change. Mm-hmm. So we are all aware of the carbon emission and with the uh, their scope one or two or three, whatever the carbon emission, we, we are almost certain by the finding of research that higher carbon emission will have lower market value of companies Mm-hmm. and also will lead to higher cost of borrowing. So mm-hmm. if, you, if, if a company is involved in high carbon emission, it's going to be much more difficult for them to, to get uh, uh, debt finance. It's going to be very hard, even for equity finance or debt finance. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, when we hear about the carbon pricing and carbon markets, those initiatives will have impact on the cost of capital of those uh, companies. And when I say impact on cost of capital, simply the market value of those companies will uh, go down dramatically. Mm -hmm. Another piece of research found that house prices exposed to any uh, sort of climate-related risk, they are around 7% lower in value compared uh, compared with house prices are not exposed to risk. Mm -hmm. In in our center in the University of Birmingham, we have in our Dubai campus, we launched... We would, I would say, really important report on adaptation and building resilience in a changing world. So we provided uh, interdisciplinary uh, results of our research on food security, adaptation, mm-hmm. health, environment, global finance and governance. So this work was led by uh, Professor David Hanna, his UNESCO chair in water sciences, and we share our recommendation to the national and uh, global uh, recommendation uh, on uh, just may help to mitigate the impact of climate change. Mm. So I, I was just thinking as you were talking that uh, I, I was having a conversation whilst I was in Hong Kong regarding, say, for instance, an airline company. So we understand, you know, airlines, very high carbon emissions. What and I, I couldn't understand the mechanism of how they, uh, the, the, say, for instance, an airline would offset its carbon footprint. Uh, and I had it explained to me that the, the, they, they actually invest in uh, carbon offsetting companies. And these companies in themselves effectively just go out and buy land to, to, to or purchase land to, to grow trees on. And... I, I can understand the logic behind it, but how do you quantify the the offsetting of that carbon? Yeah, so this, this is a technical question. Yeah. In, uh, what, what I would say is just uh, 
investments in uh, innovation and R&D is actually key in order mm-hmm. to tackle carbon emission. And by the way, uh, airlines are not the uh, probably regarded as a big emitters of carbon emission. Mm-hmm. So manufacturing and and of course uh, uh, the uh, oil and gas sector they are regarded one of the top emitters. Mm-hmm. So rather than uh, uh, those no, airlines, it was just that I was having this conversation whilst I was in Hong Kong with someone who's working for uh, Cathay actually at the yeah. time, and they're like saying this is how they do it. Uh, and yeah. it just seemed to be, oh, actually, how do you quantify the, say, for instance, how, how do you balance, you know, what, you know, what is the mechanism for balancing the CO2 yeah. that is emitted with the oxygen yeah. which is emitted on the plus side? Yeah. So, uh, yes, this, this is really important. And the science is, is now very advanced in order to quantify that. For instance, mm. when we look at our airline tickets for every flight, you will see in the ticket, if you read it carefully, how much... CO2 emission uh, due to your flight. Ah. And now they try to give you other options. Would mm-hmm. you like to go greener right. flight, which is lower carbon emission, but you will have to pay a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And again, that when I say investments in technology, like uh, for instance, uh, uh, projects on uh, carbon capture and storage, uh, those technology and th- those innovation is able to capture carbon from the atmosphere, from mm-hmm. the environment. And then you can recycle this in a different manufacturing, in greenhouses, and so on. So, but we will need funding in order, because, in order to invest in those innovations because it needs billions of dollars of investments. Mm-hmm. Very wise words. Well, uh, Hisham, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for spending time with us uh, this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Uh, Call us on 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK if you have something to say regarding the environment. Now, I suppose, you know, in conclusion to this, you know, uh, the central message uh, of this uh, discussion really is that uh, unity and collective action are imperative uh, for forging Uh, a sustainable and resilient future. Um, The key takeaway lies in understanding that the challenges of climate change are universal and, you know, they don't just finish with our borders. Uh, It has to be a collaborative effort amongst nations, communities and individuals. Uh, And something that Martin was saying, one of our previous guests, to amplify their needs for urgent action on climate uh, change and climate justice. The head of the uh, worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness, Mirza Musman Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, said in the Friday sermon delivered on the 21st of September 2012, Today, natural disasters are prevalent and there is destruction all round. Storms and hurricanes are occurring in the US at a greater frequency than before. The economic crisis is worsening. Various uh, inhabitations of the world are a threat of being submerged in the water due to global warming. So it's a salient reminder of what climate change and actually climate crisis is all about. 
With that, we're just going to go to the five o'clock news. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, uh, in our studios here in South London. Um, we finished with uh, COP22 about climate change. And I suppose another kind of, like, I say, I keep on saying kind of, I should stop that as a note to myself. But another aspect of, I suppose, our our, our environment, right? Uh, if nothing else, if you look up to the stars, is astronomy uh, as a link in. Uh, and I've got a, our guest here actually live in the studio with us. But at the time when the Holy Quran was revealed, you know, over 1400 years ago, the knowledge surrounding the cosmos and the universe was scarce and primitive at best. However, with the advancements in science, along with man's unquenchable thirst for knowledge, our understanding surrounding the stars, comets, galaxies and all the wonders that the universe uh, holds has considerably expanded. The state of existence of the universe is sustained and orderly organisation and its amazing architecture do indeed suggest to the rational mind that there are or that there ought to be a creator and sustainer of this ultimate marvel of science and art. The orderly management of the universe governed by unchanging laws indicates the presence of an intelligent sustainer, a creator, running the affairs of the cosmos. There are numerous verses of the Holy Quran which instruct believers to ponder over the signs of God scattered across the universe. In the creation of the heavens and the earth and in the alternation of the night and the day, there are indeed signs for men of understanding. Those who remember Allah while standing, sitting and lying on their sides and ponder over the creation of the heavens and the earth. Our Lord, thou hast not created this in vain. Nay, holy art thou. Save us then from the punishment of fire. So that's from chapter 3, verses uh, 191 to 192. Now, just giving a you know, quick uh, so basis of what astronomy is. Astronomy is the study, and most probably Rachel's going to correct me here if I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, astronomy is the study of everything in the universe beyond the Earth's atmosphere. Studied for hundreds of years, it's an early science that studies celestial bodies, their origins, properties, and evolution. Amazingly, we now have the technology to see vast parts of the universe, something we could only have ever dreamed of once upon a time. Uh, it's surreal to see ancient galaxies, some over 13 billion years old, captured in vivid colour. The image of Stephen's quintet allows us to glimpse at how galaxies interact and merge with each other. One cannot help but marvel at the sheer perfection of it and wonder about its creator. It says in the Holy Quran, chapter 2, verse 118, He is the originator of the heavens and the earth. When he decrees a thing, he does only say to it, Be, and it is. And, you know, before... There was all this technology, you know, these, uh, these telescopes out in, in, in space you know, that could capture these sharp images. The night sky still captured our collective imagination. It was always a place of beauty and mystery. The vast, uh, the vast 
or the dark vastness, I should say, inspired artists, scientists, and philosophers alike. So, you know, here in the studio, I'm I'm with. Oh, I'm just going to get the right sheet. Rachel. Rachel Perkins is a senior planetarium presenter,、uh, and we're going to be speaking about you know one of those experiences, the immersive experiences. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Rachel. Thank you for joining me in the studio today. Thank you for having me here. Excited. So you're excited. We're all excited. <laughs> so we're talking about astronomy, right? So you know, with the immersive experiences,、um, what what's what's it all about? Just give our listeners a, a quick. Yeah, so、um, I work for a company called Immersive Experiences,、mm-hmm. and we go all over the UK with、okay. mobile planetariums, and we get to bring astronomy to you, and、okay. that's what I really like about it because、mm-hmm. the fixed domes in the UK, some of the smaller places don't really like smaller villages up、mm-hmm. in Scotland, or、um, they don't really have access to planetariums, and astronomy is one of those subjects that. You don't really get taught it. Yeah.、Um, I did astrophysics, and you didn't really touch on astronomy that much.、Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I love about、um, the mobile domes. You can go anywhere all over the UK and just get people loving the skies because、right. not many、so、people how, really how, know what you can actually see out there. Yeah. How big are these domes then? Is it like a trailer, forty-foot trailer? How big are they?、Uh, we've got various sizes. So our smallest domes are about four meter in diameter. So、okay. you can get about fifteen smaller kids in there.、Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got all the way up to ten meters, which are in our inflatable domes. So you、okay. can fit about sixty people in there.、Okay. So they're good for bigger schools.、Um, but we also do have they're called geodesic domes. It's getting kind of terminology here, but basically they're more rigid,、um, mm-hmm. like structure.、Um, They can go up to I think it's twenty two that we have, twenty、okay. meters in diameter. So you can get quite a lot of people, people in there. In there yeah. Right. Okay. So I mean, given you know the 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 developments that we've seen in virtual reality, right?、Uh, all these like screens that we've seen、uh, and augmented reality. How do you foresee these technologies shaping the future of you know astronomy and that that kind of experience that you're you're promoting? I think they're amazing tools. So we've already started using virtual reality as part of the packages that we offer. Because、mm-hmm. um, with the virtual reality, like you can go to space without、yeah. having to leave Earth. You can kind of experience what astronauts would feel when they're in the space station,、mm-hmm. or see what they would see outside of Earth's atmosphere. And so I think they really are a, a wonderful addition、mm-hmm. to planetarium or just astronomy learning in general. And they're just also really engaging, and I know that the younger younger audience do kind of. I suppose like you know, that. for 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 you know the younger generation or those who are more、uh, social media or technology adept, it's an easier way for them to interface. Yeah, they're they're more familiar with it than me. I'm 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 not massively familiar with it. I'm、mm. I know enough to. Use it and to help other people use it, but the younger ones, like you say, they're more technology literate、mm-hmm. every day. Like my little cousin, she knows so much more about just her phone than I do.、Yeah. <laughs> Never mind virtual reality. But you can see that it is a really useful tool because they、mm-hmm. come away from it. Experience of something that they've never experienced、mm-hmm. before. They love it, and it just sparks their curiosity for、mm. what is actually out there. I mean, I suppose. In in a sense, you know, my idea of the stars, and、uh, I've always been interested. You know, we, we you know, we're, we're very lucky because we're in the northern hemisphere,、mm. and the actual constellations are very, very、um, 
they're much more interesting here than they are in the southern hemisphere, right? Because we've got mm. a lot more. Okay, we do, correct? we do. So a lot of the northern hemisphere constellations, they actually originate a lot from Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this guy called Ptolemy, who I'll yeah. be speaking about a lot. Uh, but he was a very famous Greek astronomer. And um, a lot of the northern hemisphere constellations we get from him. Mm-hmm. But what I like about the southern constellations is that a lot of them are named after scientific advances mm-hmm. that have helped us come forward in right. terms of astronomy and science. Um, and so the southern hemisphere is kind of really a, an ode to science in terms of their, I would say, the modern constellations I'm talking about. Because mm-hmm. throughout history, throughout different cultures, everybody's got their own constellations. But modern astronomers, like you mm-hmm. say, the northern hemisphere is more Greek. So you tend to have a lot more Greek mythology in mm-hmm. there. But the southern is more an ode to science, which I kind of kind of like in a mm-hmm. way yeah it's a bit of a different slant or a different trend yeah. so as part of your experiences you know you do one based on islam obviously we're interested we're the voice of islam here uh i mean can you tell us about this one and you know how how well is it actually received yeah so a lot of the requests we get for this do actually come from the muslim community mm-hmm. and what really is nice is that they don't expect us to have that it's not really a common thing that mm-hmm. you go to the big planetariums and it's all northern hemisphere mm-hmm. like modern telescope advancements yeah, this is the big dipper and this is yeah. the plow and this is orion's belt exactly yeah. and you never really get that history and mm-hmm. it is such a vivid history mm-hmm. and i think they just appreciate that we can accommodate that mm-hmm. and it's a mobile dome as well so we can right. go anywhere you want us to go like mm-hmm. festivals um how i got introduced to voice of islam we did a there was a festival going on and mm-hmm. it was um a girl's astronomy section mm-hmm. and i was there with my dome and yeah they just loved it because we do we've got a few th- things we can do we've got a live presenter led show which is me and the dome mm-hmm. and i can go through the moon the phases and mm-hmm. um, but then we also do have a, a 360 dome show which mm-hmm. is called arabian stars and it's just a really nice look at the history mm-hmm. of islam and astronomy and so the reception to it is always they always love it mm-hmm. and like i say you don't really get many of these types of shows that delve into that history so Mm -hmm. i think they really appreciate it as well yeah i think we forget you know we're in you know the uk and the links that astronomy and uh, has with uh, islam uh, and the discoveries that uh, islamic scholars have contributed to the world of astronomy i mean why was astronomy so important to the early uh, arabian astronomers it's a very good question so um Early astronomers, everybody has, throughout the cultures, everybody has um, viewed astronomy for their own certain reasons. But Mm -hmm. Arabian astronomers in particular, well, a lot of the time they they need to find Mecca Mm -hmm. so they know when to pray. And the stars and astronomy is a perfect way to orientate yourself. So you can use the sun to find south, east, west, and Mm -hmm. then you can find where north is. But if you're also traveling by night, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the time they would, it's really hot in the day. Mm -hmm. It's easier to travel by night. So if you're using the stars, they can also give you direction. Mm -hmm. And they're like clockwork. They appear at the same time. They like they set at the same time mm-hmm. and so if you if you get familiar with that clockwork pattern you can actually start to guesstimate time and that is also useful for when you need to figure out what time it is yeah. and I mean, when I th- the prayers I w- are. I would have thought it's just logical right because um, 
you know, in the Arabian Peninsula, it's just vast desert. Mm. So there's not really, and okay, it's dark as well, right? So <laughs> you can't see anything. But even if you were to see something, you're just seeing a lot of sand dunes, right? So there's not anything of that you can um, pick out geographically. Like say, oh, look, there's a mountain over there. There's a whatever over there. Yeah. I mean, there are mountains, but uh, like you say, you know, most of the traveling uh, these these huge caravans that used to travel across. Uh, the, the 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 peninsula would travel at night time because you know mm. what it's not as hot right to exactly. start off with and you'll be using the stars as your guide yeah and the um this is a really cool invention called the astrolabe which mm-hmm. was basically a map but they use the stars as their guide and if you've ever seen an astrolabe it might have like a little arrow pointing to like a pointer star and they'd mm-hmm. use that star to help guide them right kind of similar so it's to like how a you... reference yeah, yeah exactly and that helps just orientate yourself and helps you know where you're going okay. um so if you've got any listeners in oxford i know that in the history of science museum in oxford they've got a really beautiful collection right, okay. of astrolabes there so you can actually see for yourselves what these devices are are they quite complex devices I, I'm, I'm trying to picture it in my mind is it kind of globe type of um, so interlinked <laughs> it's actually not it's it's flat really okay. and um, the kind of depending on where you are geographically you can just put in the mm-hmm. different map so if you're in the northern hemisphere you can put on the northern hemisphere map and the southern okay. hemisphere the southern hemisphere map it depends on the actual astrolabe as well because they would vary so a star's compass yeah, really? essentially, okay, yeah essentially yeah they're just beautiful as well they're yeah. just stunning to look at <laughs> beautiful work so yeah why do so many stars actually bear you know, um, Arabic names? Well, during... we There's this period in Islamic history yeah, called... The Ottoman, the, the Golden Era. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And during that time, I kind of liken it to like the modern Renaissance area in the West. Yeah. Yeah. It was basically a flourishing of, like, of um, mathematics, of mm-hmm. astronomy, and a lot of work got done in those centuries, and it was thanks to translating translating old Greek texts Mm -hmm. and Arabic scholars would add to it Mm -hmm. and they were very good at it, very, very good at it. Um, And eventually their texts also then got translated into Latin in about Mm -hmm. 12th century. And it was those translations that survived as well and have also influenced modern astronomers. So Mm -hmm. one of the like the greatest pieces of work, I would say, is basically a big book called um, the Book of Stars, mm-hmm. and in it he used. I'm going back to Ptolemy again, mm-hmm. um, the Greek Greek astronomer. Um, so they used Ptolemy's works and mm-hmm. added to it, mm-hmm. and a lot of the stars in there, about two thirds of the stars that we have currently that we know are like known stars, are actually listed in there and they all got given Arabic names because it was Arabic scholars who were Mm -hmm. listing them and what I really like about the Book of Stars as well is that in there it actually records Andromeda Galaxy and they didn't know it was a galaxy at the time Mm -hmm. Um, and it was only later on when we got you know more advanced with telescopes that we figured out it wasn't actually a star it was a galaxy but it it's still pretty cool that even back then you can Mm -hmm. see a galaxy because remember they're doing all this without really that many you know with not instruments, a lot of, yeah. yeah like well it was a sophisticated telescope yeah, yeah so with they that were kind of this, magnification exactly they're doing this just with their eyes and mm. you imagine the skill that takes 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I find it find hard to focus on the on the script in front of me, <laughs> let alone focusing on these stars, yeah. which are you know, a gazillion light years away. I mean, they were lucky they didn't have as much light pollution as we did, so I imagine mm. their night skies would have been so been, much more glorious yeah, than the modern so city skies. Vivid, really. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so you know, can you tell us a bit about uh, Abu Ali Al Hassan, uh, Al Hassan, and his contribution to astronomy? Yeah, so I've um, your cue cards there. Yeah, I've got a few, a few notes <laughs> just to, just to help. Um, so I don't know if people have ever noticed, but if you've ever seen the sun or the moon close to the horizon, okay. it actually looks slightly bigger than when it's like right above you. Right. Um, so if you've ever seen a sunset, the sun mm-hmm. looks huge compared huge. Yeah, to yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah I get you. Um, yeah. And that's due to refraction of light through the atmosphere. Right. And um, Hassan was one of the first people to correctly explain this using the reflection of light but he's also very 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 smart and he's considered the father of optics Mm -hmm. so he wrote he literally wrote the book (laughs) book of optics and the latin translation of that has actually been used as a reference in isaac newton's works um kepler's works and galileo's works Mm -hmm. so he was very very much a pioneer of Mm -hmm. optics and his works have influenced the west as well Mm -hmm through those um, Latin translations. So he was very smart, very smart to do that. So moving on from him, I mean, what about uh, Al-Biruni and how he managed to measure the Earth's, I mean, how, you know, the Earth's radius? Yeah. How did you do that at that time? You were talking about, well, okay, about 1,300 years ago, right? Yeah, and it all comes down to maths and observations. So you don't, really need too much you just kind of have to really think of it mm-hmm. um and he obviously did he had a very mathematical mind he mm-hmm. was very well versed in trigonometry and he basically used his knowledge of trigonometry to help calculate the radius mm-hmm. of the earth so he measured the angle so if this is the right sorry for viewers who can't see me but <laughs> <laughs> right, i'll try to explain rachel's kind of like making an uh, angle. <laughs> a right angle right 90 degree right angle yeah so he measured the angle um of elevation from the top of a, a mountain he knew okay. the height of it right and then he also measured the angle of elevation from a, a plane mm-hmm. and compared them and through mathematics and trigonometry he actually managed to give an estimate for the mm-hmm. radius of the earth using that oh, okay. um and his what it says here it's 3928.77 miles was his calculation okay. which is is actually not far off <laughs> um so he actually did it in cubits and there is a little bit of a a bit of a debate about what an ancient cubit measurement is so some scholars think it was about 18 inches some scholars think it was about 22 inches so there is a little bit of uncertainty there cuz the actual length of a cubit nobody yeah, it's because it's, it's your your arm isn't yeah, it from your so fingertips is... to your elbow exactly so there's a little everyone's bit arms of... a bit slightly different yeah because mine is quite short but then yeah. other people are quite tall so they'd have longer arms so mm-hmm. there's a little bit of room for error there but generally his 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 um calculation was pretty pretty accurate in mm-hmm. terms of how how he did it and using his maths it was spot on the maths he used Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, moving on, we're just going to go through a whole kind of panoply yeah. <laughs> of uh, uh, scholars here. So, what about uh, Ibn Shatir and his impact on later astronomers? So, Shatir, he was very uh, he's known for his um, well, he adapted again going back to Ptolemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he adapted Ptolemy's 
um, models of, well, just the the universe, well, how he knew the universe, as in how the Earth and sun and stars moved. Mm-hmm. So Ptolemy's model was geocentric, meaning that the Earth was at the centre right. and everything else was on... Around. E- exactly. Okay. Now, Chatier didn't change that. Um, he stayed with the geocentric model, but he was very good at observations. Right. And he tweaked Ptolemy's model so that what he was actually seeing was reflected in the model a little bit better. So he okay. adjusted some of the, the, the rings, the, um, the rings that are coming around from the middle. And basically the observations that he was seeing, so like when the moon was rising, when Mercury was in the sky, mm-hmm. it just kind of matched the model a bit better. Right, okay. Um, so that was basically done with just observations. Yeah, right, so okay. again, you don't need to do much. You just have to look at the sky, the really. And exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it sounds so simple, but it's kind of not because you've got to kind of track things across and so, the sky. So, so, this is track me. so when in astronomy did the this geocentric idea of our universe, right, uh, get dispelled? Um, um, and the the true <laughs> nature of the universe come. Yeah, so it. Um, I know it's not one of your questions. No, no, it just true. occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, so um, again, it, every science it kind of evolves with the new theories you mm-hmm. come come out or new technology that help you discover it. But mainly, it was Copernicus. Copernicus, yeah, who came along and kind of also like. Mm, hmm. Actually, maybe not. So he then thought of, well, what happens if the Earth isn't at the Mm centre and kind of figured out what would happen in terms of how would that model look Mm -hmm. and came up with the Copernicus model, which was Mm -hmm. heliocentric. So the sun was at the centre instead. Um, What's interesting, though, is um, Copernicus also had access to Ptolemy's works. Um, We're not sure if he had access to Chatier's works, Mm -hmm. but there are some similarities and there is a little bit of crossover. So some scholars kind of figured he might have seen a little bit of his work Mm -hmm. and used that in his own work and then came up with this geocentric model. Mm -hmm. But it's not... um, we're not sure. It's not a given. But, yeah, but right. both Copernicus and Shatir had access to Ptolemy's works. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's just interesting how yeah. you can go because, different because ways from the same words. Although, in my mind, I'm not an astronomer, right? But I'm just like thinking of it in a semi-logical way. That if you're given one model of which you know, you've got the geocentric, where the Earth is in the centre and everything revolves around the Earth, uh, and then suddenly uh, you're saying, actually... No, let's use something else as our center and let's revolve everything else around that center. It's not a huge jump mm. because you're still revolving around something, right? Yeah. Uh, but you're just making that center, that access different. Yeah. And um, it wasn't so this widely mis- well received at the time. Yeah, I know. I kind of, yeah, I'm <laughs> sure you're a bit of a radical kind of like, oh my God, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, what do what they used to call them? Heathen, right? Yeah. Uh, in that in that terminology or that time. Um, coming back to, uh, you know, how did uh, Islamic uh, astronomy findings actually influence? I mean, I suppose somewhat, you've answered that question already, but influence uh, European astronomy? So again, it came from 
that period of the golden age and all of this astronomy was being done and it was being written down but it was that translation into latin that then the western world had access to and they could use those works in their own works and use them as references Mm -hmm. so a lot of the groundwork basically that they built upon was done during the islamic golden age and it's due to those translations that they were able to use and Mm -hmm. incorporate those ideas into their own Mm -hmm. and it basically just set off astronomy in the west Mm -hmm. um so yeah all of that work that all of these muslim scholars did and arabian scholars did it was basically the the foundations Mm -hmm. upon which a lot of Western astronomers Mm -hmm. kind of built their own theories and kind Mm -hmm. of went their own way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in in that sense, uh, I was just like thinking, I I remember seeing a program, I can't remember what kind of program, obviously a natural history program a long time ago. Um, And actually identifying uh, within that program this idea of, I'm most probably kind of misquoting, procession. Mm. And the procession of stars, right? So that they don't actually over, you know, you're talking over centuries and generations. Although they're kind of like in the right, in that area, there is a minimal change because of procession. In layman's terms, what is procession? Because I never really kind of quite understood it when it came out. Yeah, so... Essentially, it's just that the stars, yes, they appear fixed relative to each other, mm-hmm. but over thousands of years, that's actually not true. They actually right. do move slightly. Okay. Um, because of gravitation. Yeah, but also they're in a galaxy and they're all right. spinning around a mm-hmm. galaxy, aren't they? And yeah. then also the Earth processes as well. So, yes, it spins around, but as it spins around on its axis for like 26,000 years, it kind of does a circle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, actually, the North Star changes and it comes back to the same one every 26,000 years. Right. So the North Star... What would you star, say changes? What do you mean by that? It doesn't yeah. change to another star, but it just... No, it didn't. Yeah, so oh, the, it changes the ax- to another yeah, star. The axis, the axis points to a different star in the sky because okay. as um, the axis is spinning around this 26,000-year procession, it kind of mm. does a circle like that. Okay. So it, It's like a spinning top then. Yeah, exactly. Right? And the, uh, it, the axis actually points to a different star. So... The North Star of like the ancient Egyptians, for example, mm-hmm. was Thuban. It wasn't Polaris that we have today. Right. Um, I think Thuban's in Draco, the constellation Draco. Right, you've lost me there. I'm not. I'm, I can't remember, but. <laughs> but I get the idea, right? Because <laughs> yeah. like, if you're pointing, and and, and and you know, basically that route that you're taking is taking twenty six thousand years, then obviously you're going to be looking totally different, but. In terms of and why why it, it kind of got my attention was that uh, I think it was a um, a program about uh, a, a temple in Campuchia, right? Uh, I'm trying desperately to think of the name of that temple, but that the on the bridge to that temple, these stone statues were actually positioned in alignment to you know certain star constellations but actually that they weren't uh in alignment to the current constellations mm. and why was that the case and hence you had precession yeah and it's but interesting for them to be that precise though yeah that's what you find through a lot of ancient 
like monuments who have aligned it with the stars, mm-hmm. a lot of them are scarily accurate. And I think that is just because they were so dedicated to getting it right and just being as accurate as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, but also astronomy was very important, regardless of your culture, way back in the day, because the stars could act like a calendar. Yeah, yeah. And um, it just helped you in your daily life. For farmers, for example, mm-hmm. um, if I go back to Egypt, um, star, the star Sirius, as soon mm-hmm. as that started to rise, that indicated that the Nile was about to flood. Okay. And Egypt being quite dry, they relied mm-hmm. on the Nile flooding for yeah, farming. Flooding. Yeah. So a lot of the um, reasons why you might see them having these alignments is because basically they're calendars mm-hmm. most of the time. Not all the time, but it could be a calendar. And it's just really useful, especially mm. in everyday life at the time, because we didn't have clocks like we do. Yeah, because we take for granted. Like I'm looking at you know, our studio clock, I don't know, five thirty. I've got another half hour, yeah. and it's towards the end of the show. I mean, you know, we're talking you know, centuries ago. You didn't have clocks and whatever. You'd have to actually look at a sundial. Now, uh, well, that's not going to work now because I'm looking outside our window. It's dark. Yeah. So you just like say, well, we're somewhere in the night. So to have those stars as um, some kind of, I suppose, you know, uh, mechanism for which for you know, you can tell mm. how to, you know, work out your 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 calendar for the year. Yeah. Right? So on a personal level, you know, how's your background, or how has your background in astrophysics with a master's degree influenced your journey as a senior uh, planetarium presenter? And how do you? Use your experiences to encourage and inspire uh, young girls to pursue careers in astronomy and related fields. Because, like you said, right at the top of the show, it's, you know, we don't get a lot of exposure to it, right? It's not as if it's one of those things that your uh, A-level or your teachers at A-level or even O-level would be pushing you towards, right? Yeah, it's not. They tend to focus you on STEM, like engineering yeah. or physics and astronomy. Because they're the kind safe of, things, right? Yeah, uh, astronomy is just kind of left over to the side, which mm-hmm. is kind of kind of sad because a lot of, um, well, from a cultural point of view, astronomy is rich, very mm-hmm. rich, and I think that's kind of why I like it so much. Mm-hmm. It just connects you with all the different cultures and how their way of life mm-hmm. evolved around the stars and, and how, how they we're viewed all the stars. Interrel- yeah, we're we're yeah. all kind of like linked here, yeah, whether you be. Like you know, from Greek, yeah, from Greek to to Islamic to Western culture, mm. right? So you can see that there is that uh, connection, really, yeah, through astronomy. And I think I I think that's kind of what I liked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was first introduced via my dad. He started teaching me about the constellations, and I just kind of got hooked from there, if I'm being honest. But mm-hmm. the more I kind of delved into it, the more you you, you get all of these lovely stories from different cultures as well mm-hmm. and I just I just love learning so I think that kind of helped me get into astronomy but what I am thankful for as well is that there has actually been released an astronomy GCSE mm-hmm. and it's optional at the moment and I don't really know how many people are taking it but I've, I've seen a few um, a few schools do offer it it doesn't really touch on the culture of astronomy it is more modern astronomy and like how you calculate the star movement and things like that mm-hmm. but it's a good start um, you know, you... But with astrophysics, yeah, I mean, is that such a, I know both things or both disciplines begin with A, mm. but is it a bigger leap? There is some crossover. Mm-hmm. So when I was doing my course, it was more based on modern, astro- like, if it was to touch on astronomy, it'd be like modern astronomy. And um, it wasn't really any 
it was more mathematical. Right, like, okay. here's all of the theory behind it. Here's the maths, how it works. Um, and I think the only thing really that touched on astronomy was coordinate and timekeeping, mm-hmm. which was using sometimes you could use reference stars and you'd use their, it's, it's called it zenith, so when it's at its highest point mm-hmm. and things like that to measure time. I think that was kind of where astronomy and astrophysics kind of stopped being connected and then we mm-hmm. went and learned about different physics rather mm-hmm. than astronomy. Um, but I really loved that module. It was one of my favourites. Um, so... They are interconnected, but they're not as interconnected as people expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why when people think about astronomy, they're like, oh, I don't know anything about astronomy. Why do I not know anything? Mm-hmm. It's just not something that's taught unless you've got someone there mm-hmm. to teach you. Right. And it's a shame because it, it's so rich in history. It connects mm-hmm. you to your culture, to different cultures. Mm-hmm. And it's just really fun to look up in the sky and go, oh, did you know that that is? It's just really cool. And mm-hmm. it's my party trick, actually. If there's mm-hmm. any planets in the sky, just to go, actually, guys, do you know that there? That, well, that, <laughs> that's actually Jupiter. That's that's not a star. And right. it just goes, wow. They just love it. Okay. So, I mean, how, how would you encourage then, uh, you know, the younger generation, whether they be girls or boys, right, to, 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 you know, pursue a career, you know, in astronomy? I would say, first of all, literally just go into your back garden and look up at the sky. Um, it's such a simple step, but it's the first step. And it's so easy to do. It's free to do. Mm-hmm. I mean... Hope for clear night, because uh, in Manchester, where I'm from, it's, it's a bit, bit murky sometimes. Yeah, right? sometimes, <laughs> but occasionally you get that clear night, and um, it's just getting familiar with the nighttime sky. Because mm-hmm. we don't, like you say, we 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 just don't really take it for. Mm. I mean, I, I I've been lucky in the sense that I've been, you know, in places where by, you know, there isn't a lot of urban lighting, mm. and at night time. You know, uh, you just see um, just the, the the clarity of those stars that you see, mm. and it is it's just awe inspiring. Um, and you, know, I'm just like a, a beginner compared to you, right? Not even a beginner, I wouldn't think. <laughs> I, I recognise certain constellations, but it's quite nice to like, oh yeah, I spot that, mm. right? And I know like if I look at the the plow. I, you know, down is Orion's belt. And so, and it's it's nice. And then to know that actually there's a story behind everything. Yeah. And in terms of astronomy as well, what's really cool is that today we have a lot more technology wise. Mm-hmm. So we like... At the start of the show, you were talking about galaxies like 13 billion years old. We can see so much more. Mm-hmm. So I suppose it is more exciting that way. Exciting? Is it accessible? That right? is the That's thing. the only thing, right? Yeah. So if I wanted to get into it, how much would a... I mean, we, we used to make those telescopes, right? But you're not going to see anything out of a pinhole telescope, right? No. But how much, I mean, you know, would it take? Is it? Is it... Yeah, a lot of money to get a telescope? Um, I personally would start with just naked eye astronomy right, uh, okay. before you get into That's buying cheap. any. <laughs> well, no, because it's um, it saves you a lot of stress later on when you've got the telescope because you've got to figure out how to use this telescope and where to look. So if you, if you learn where to look first mm-hmm. and get familiar with your sky, you can actually still do quite a lot of astronomy without the use of a telescope. So you can see 
certain planets when they're visible because they do move a bit around the sky. Um, mm-hmm. But when they're visible, uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn can actually be seen f- with just your eyes. There's mm-hmm. just a bright dot, but it's still a planet, which is pretty cool. Get used to that first and then buy a, a cheap telescope. So start looking at the moon, start looking at the planets. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to actually make a career out of it um then you can i would say go on to the bigger telescopes like mm-hmm. the ones in chile or mm-hmm. like you know the elo and things like that um so you can make a career out of it it's very niche i will say mm-hmm. <laughs> but there is there is opportunity there mm. but um, I, I suppose like you say the starter kit is quite easy you're just using your eyes right yeah and then that's gonna you know dictate whether you really have you know, uh, uh, kind of like this, this, this urge to go into that field. Yeah. But you know, Rachel, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You're more than welcome to stay in the studio. Uh, but if you have to go, I know you said you had a bus to catch. By all means, uh, flit off. But I'm going to uh, be taking our next caller. But just um, in in terms of, uh, we've gone through all. The, uh, I think uh, Rachel's already given us a list of uh, 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 you know, the uh, Arabic, Arabic uh, scholars who have contributed to the field of astronomy. Now, you know, in terms of you know, the prophecies that we can see in the Holy Quran and, and the cosmos, the, the promised Messiah, may Allah strengthen or may Allah be pleased with him, has stated that when a believer studies and ponders over the celestial bodies and the entire universe, it causes their minds to open up and for them to become enlightened. The very first chapter of the Holy Quran attributes God as Rabbil Alamin, or the Lord of all the worlds, indicating that God is the creator and the sustainer of all. This also subtly hints towards the knowledge of the presence of more than one world. And, you know, as Muslims, you know, we, we do our five daily prayers. So we start off with Surah Fatiha in every prayer. So, you know, okay, sometimes when we're reciting, we shouldn't be, okay, this is a kind of like a, a word to the wise, just reciting by rote. When we recite Surah Fatiha, you, you, you need to kind of appreciate every word that you're saying because that's your communion with God. And in that, you know, you're saying, you know, Lord of all the worlds. And, you know, that's always been, I mean, to me, an indicator that, you know, there are other worlds out there. I mean, how can it be statistically possible, right, that we happen to be on the only planet that sustains life in a multitude of you know planets out there right it's just it's just you know there must be it's just that we haven't come across them yet um but uh, to talk more about this and actually photography uh, i'm hoping that i'm going to be joined by our next guest of the day um so let's get him on Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you. I'm joined by uh, Hamza Ilyas, who is a, uh, a astrophotographer. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Hamza. Right. And so we've been talking about astronomy. Uh, I mean, what sparked your interest in astronomy? How do you pursue your passion uh, for this particular field of science? Um, what sparked it? I mean, there's, uh, interestingly enough, uh, there are many a times I, as a child, I used to look up at the sky and see the constellations, and I would hear, oh, you see that bright star? That's a star, that's a planet. 
mm-hmm. and um, I nourished these uh, experiences as a child. And one day I was out with a friend of mine, and uh, we had read on the BBC that there was a comet that was visible to the naked eye, and we, you know, scanned the sky, the dark sky, looking for it. We couldn't find anything, and I went to go inside my house, and I was then um, taken back to those early uh, experiences of looking up at the night sky, and I thought to myself, oh, I wish I had a telescope. And then I was quickly reminded, well, I'm not a child anymore. I couldn't go out and get my own telescope. And mm-hmm. so that I did. Okay. And that's how I first got started. So it was just that, uh, yeah, you did not not quite believe that, yeah, was there actually this comet in the sky? And yeah, I'm going to get myself a telescope. Uh, good on you. I mean, the the universe in its infant infinites well infant in, well in it. I'm, actually, I'm just trying to read the question. The universe, <laughs> right, in its uh, entirety. Uh, I mean, it means that we'll always be discovering new things, right? Because it's expanding, you know, with our knowledge is expanding with it. I mean, are there any exciting new discoveries or debates in the field of astronomy currently? And I've still got Rachel in here, so she can join in on this conversation. Um, I think, you know, with the, it's such a broad question. There's, there's mm-hmm. uh, uh, many new discoveries, as Rachel pointed out, of course, um, that are subject to debate because all of these. Uh, theories are often peer-reviewed, but one of the ones that uh, sparked my interest that I came across uh, a week or so ago uh, talked about how water migrates from uh, sort of, uh, uh, or just backtrack, it talks about the formation, the early formation, and how water migrates uh, from the outer rocky sort of springs mm-hmm. in a densely packed area of of uh, rocky, if you will, and for the formation of um, rocky planets, water migrates to the center, which explains how water exists on certain planets. And so that's under discussion. I've simplified it a great deal perhaps for our audience, but uh, yeah, that's a really the, interesting point. Unfortunately, Hamza, you, you, you kind of, you, your sound's coming in and out. And I, I got water migration, right? Ah, yes. So let me take myself off. Okay. I hope this is a little bit better. Oh, that's much clearer. <laughs> okay, excellent, excellent. Did so, you have uh, us on speakerphone or something? <laughs> oh, well, I had my I had my headset on, which is uh, uh, convenient for me because oh, okay. I'm in my office, but uh, less convenient for the listeners. So in short, um, there's a new discovery that was confirmed by the James Webb Telescope Mm-hmm. And uh, so what ends up happening is that a lot of the debris, rocky debris left over from the formation of, uh, of a star um, often finds itself the nucleus of the formation of its solar system, of the planets in that solar system. And so for uh, any one of those potentially um, rocky uh, planets, uh, there was always a question around how water gets to those planets. And what the mm-hmm. James Webb Telescope has discovered is that um, in the debris that surrounds, immediately surrounds um, a, the early formation of a planet, they found that water uh, makes its way towards the center or the nucleus of that early forming planet from the sort of icy okay. uh, outer parts of that early planet, which is really 
which is really a fascinating discovery currently under review. Mm. I mean, why would it make its way to the... Anyway, that's... that's yeah, I'm not going to open that can of worms because I'm, I'm sure that can <laughs> you know, go for another hour. In, in, but my, my mind's very curious. Why does it go to the centre? Yeah, I mean, what is the attraction for water? But no, I'm going to desist from that line of questioning. Um, well, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant line of questioning because if you think about it, um, it, it well, I mean, what is there to attract the water to the center, the nucleus? Well, not necessarily in the nucleus. So, if you can just imagine, say, uh, you've got a. Um, you've got an early planet forming, yeah. and a lot of the larger chunks of rock are at the center of this swirling sort mass. of orbit of mass of yeah. rocks, et cetera, et cetera. And on the outer parts of that swirling in the you know center of that whirlpool, if we're just going to visualize it mm-hmm. for a second, you've got these other rocks that are being pulled in by uh, gravity toward the center because these rocks are then falling upon each other and clumping together, being mm-hmm. held by the gravity. And so uh, being able to understand how water... Uh, finds its way onto planets because we know water is one of the building blocks of life. Mm-hmm. And so the presence of water in any planet will help uh, potentially lead to other things like maybe even the discovery of life in mm-hmm. either early forms or otherwise. And so that's the reason why we specifically look for uh, planets or exoplanets that have a presence of water because mm. it could potentially be indicative of the potential for life. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, as um, you know, uh, coming from you know an Islamic background and a man of faith, right? How does you know this exploration of you know the outer space consolidate your view of God? Um, well, you know, the thing is, for, for me as uh, as a Muslim, one of the things that was very attractive for me in becoming a Muslim prior to becoming a Muslim, I was a Christian. Um, as a Christian, you were always uh, taught that you know science and religion were two completely different things because there are a lot of things that cannot be confirmed or, are in fact, in light of modern science, denied uh, that may have been located in the Bible that I grew up with, for example. But as a Muslim, I was really intrigued because the Quran, from time to time, makes scientific observations mm-hmm. that were not known at the time. You know, we're talking 1,400 years ago in the Quran as Muslims believe, were revealed to what effectively was a goat herder mm-hmm. uh, in, in a desert. And so when the Quran talks about, uh, in chapter 21 of the Holy Quran, God talks about, do not the people who don't believe see that the heavens and the earth were closed of mass, and then we opened them out, and then mm-hmm. we made some water every living thing. I mean, you can just imagine, um, you know, 1,400 years ago, a man in a desert, a goat herder, is saying mm-hmm. that God told him these things. And later on, you and I are on this radio show talking about, talking about the yeah. presence of water found because scientists are keenly interested in this because we know that it leads to the building blocks of life. Something like that, when I first began to study the Holy Quran, not only made me really interested, but consolidated not only my continuing interest in the scientific uh, observation of life around us, but also affirmed my uh, faith mm-hmm. uh, as a Muslim as well. Mm. So, Hamza, you know, there is that, you know, the common theory about the origins of the universe uh, is, you know, the Big Bang theory. Uh, and, you know, that postulates essentially that everything came out of, came out of nothing. 
you know, at, at one particular time there's like a spark and then everything came into being. I mean, can you explain it to our listeners how, you know, this came to be and how does this theory compare with the narration of the creation of the universe from the Holy Quran? In well, fact, it's a, it's a really, from, from the verse that you just quoted. It, it's a really interesting question because, um, you know, there, there are many theories uh, aside from the Big Bang theory, but if we go with the Big Bang theory, I mean, some uh, will postulate that uh, all of this uh, gaseous uh, material um, sort of came out of nowhere. Others yet believe that, and as a matter of fact, the all of this mass was compressed you know, extraordinarily uh, compressed into a tiny point, and then these contents, of course, um, um, emerged, as it were, on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, in the Holy Quran, the verse that I just quoted uses the word ratkin, which literally means to open something up. Mm -hmm. And so some, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the late head of uh, our community, uh, His Holiness, the fourth Khalifa, Khalifa um, may God have mercy upon him, talked about this verse when he was asked about this word, Ratkin, and he pointed out that what's interesting is that, as we know, mass gets pulled in due to its extraordinary gravity into objects which we call black holes. Mm -hmm. And there are some who uh, uh, postulate that it's very well possible that these uh, black holes, with their immense and irresistible forces of gravity reach a point where it's possible that one supermassive black hole may have uh, expelled this material in one such instance could have been what gave rise to the Big Bang. So there are many theories that uh, postulate upon these things, but what's interesting is that this is one common scientific theory about uh, that can be found today, and this is one also possible explanation of the verse that I've just quoted, the heavens were a closed-up mass, then mm -hmm. we opened them out. Right, okay. I mean, any comment, Rachel, regarding that? Um, not really. Uh, I'm not very well versed in, okay. in the Quran <laughs> myself. Um, but just to add to um, that as well, just the fact that in the Quran, I can't remember where, it does state that iron comes from the sky. Mm -hmm. um, and that is indicative of iron meteorites as mm. well. So it, it just just goes to show that even back then they could record it and it is, you know, it is verifiably true that iron does come from the sky because we do have iron meteorites. So that's just my little tidbit to, <laughs> okay. to add to, to that. Right. So coming back to uh, Hamza, you know, as a photographer, um, you know, you've, you've got the ability to combine science and art. I mean, what kind of emotions and thoughts uh, does this actually produce for you? Awe is the shortest mm. answer. You know, what ends up happening is uh, this is particularly uh, fitting in light of the events that we find rife in our social media and on the Internet and in newspapers and all over the news. And we see that all of this... Um, um, you know, uh, suffering can be found in today's world. Mm. And sometimes we become overwhelmed and we think that our short, relatively short lives on this planet is all that there is. And so um, for me, oftentimes I'm sitting in my yard or at my dark site location and my telescopes pointed in various parts of the sky and you realize that you're looking out beyond our planet 
had an infinite number of stars. And I think, you know, we, we, we say from time to time, you know, 80% of the stars that we see in the sky have their own solar systems, which means... Hello? Are you still there with us, Hamza? I think he's 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 dropped out. We'll we'll wait for uh, our technicians to try and bring him back in. But actually, just that point that Hamza was like saying regarding uh, looking up at the stars and just having that awe. Um, I, I don't know if you feel the same way, uh, Rachel, but, the, but it it does give me that feeling of when I look at the stars uh, in the night sky of being of significance, right? Uh, and that actually brings me back to my own religion again, you know, uh, being a Muslim, that, you know, we, we are only here and this is a transitory or a transitory period uh, in our in our journey um, as a human being. Right. Uh, and in this material world. And then so, sometimes we do get really I suppose, pulled into the everyday grind right, of jobs families living basically mm. right and then when you know like Hamza was that saying when you look at uh when you look up to the sky uh, to the skies and you see the vastness of where we live in relation to everything else then you know there must be something else how do yeah. you feel so i also have yeah so when i look up at the sky i do feel in awe as hamza said it is mm-hmm. literally just it, your mind just goes to how big the universe actually is and like you were saying how small we are we're really a tiny speck in how vast it is um but i kind of like that i don't know some people it kind of makes them a bit scared mm-hmm. but no i kind of well, like it's that insignificance isn't it so yeah. you know uh, you know what it, what am i then really yeah uh, and then it's, it's it also actually points to you being a bit uh having some reflection on yourself right uh being well, you know, what's my purpose here? Really, is that question? Yeah. I, I'm not sure. Have we got Hamza back? Yes, I'm right here. Right. So, sorry, you had cut mid 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 sentence. Um, yeah, as to the awe. Yeah, but 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 also as you you know, and and Rachel just said, you know, there is this part of you that feels. Um, um, significant and insignificant at the yeah, same time. Yeah, it's weird, time. isn't it? It's, it's a, it's a, what's it? It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a paradox, right? It is, but you know the other uh, awesome part, and this is where the science meets the art. Um, but I like to say the the um, uh, the science meets the uh, source of creativity because this is all art is is creativity in some form or mm-hmm. another. You you're looking to pass that beauty the beauty that sits in your mind's eye or in, or in your heart. You want to share that beauty with other, uh, with others. And uh, oftentimes I try to, within my, the best of my ability, to capture the beauty in the realism mm-hmm. of what I see because, you know, it is, there, is a, there are, there are um, aspects of it that lean uh, or that have a proclivity towards art. Mm-hmm. But I try to capture the uh, realism of it because, the most amazing part about the sky is not only that you're insignificant in terms of scale, mm-hmm. but that you're significant because all of the world's religions, and especially Islam, point out that the maker and sustainer of all of these things, despite the scale, has created consciousness in each human being so that 
this uh, almighty, all-seeing being that stands outside of his creation can have a relationship with that mm. individual who has been bestowed consciousness. Oh, and for very me, well put. that's what I want to pass along and share with the, the people. Yeah, stuff. you know what, Hamza, you've, you've just, you know, you've, you've painted a picture just with your words there. I thank you very much. You know, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show today, Hamza. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So that pretty much brings us to the end of the show. Thanks once again to Rachel for coming in uh, and uh, giving us that you know the kind of like view or, or a different view of uh, astronomy, and hopefully exciting uh, some new and younger astronomers out there. Um, uh, it's, it's just time for me to say uh, goodbye. Thanks to our presenters, Zainab Fatima, Faiza Mirza, uh, Ifat Mirza, and uh, our technician, Shahir Yar. Apologies if I got that wrong, Shahir. <laughs> but anyway, that's the, uh, that's the uh, Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. Here's the 6 o'clock news.